All right, I think we're live. And here's our intro music. Can I see a little dance? Uh, Matthew, do followers the way apostles dance? Yeah. Fantastic. The more the better. Do you ever dance in your uh... jam? <laughs> do you ever dance uh, in in Boston for, unto the Lord? Like in our meetings, I haven't seen it yet. Or just in general, what's your position on dancing? I, I don't have a position on dancing. I I wish my I my, can't ever get my wife to do it with me. So maybe I like should develop a religious dancing? conviction that I don't feel rejected. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably the first time you haven't had a position on something. So I feel like I feel like when you don't have a position on something, that means you know that if like what you actually believe was publicized, you would get into trouble for it. Is that hey, the situation? I, I, I get into plenty of trouble for the things that I already believe. So I don't I don't I'm not gonna accept that criticism. Okay. Um, I'm trying to see if we are streaming live on Facebook. I'm pulling it up now. We're trying out a new software, everybody. I'm pretty sure we're streaming live on YouTube, but I do not see it popping up on Facebook yet. And now I hear an echo. Uh, I'm not, I don't, I don't see us on Facebook anywhere. Let me see if we're on YouTube. Yeah, I just picked up an echo too. Um, uh, Jar, are you still there? I can't see your video. I so I don't even. Yes. Um, I don't even see us on YouTube. Um, maybe we should just do Zoom after it's all said and done. It says we're uploading somewhere required me to put in like a man that echoes annoying do you have headphones no there's not an easy um, mute on this either yeah, there's a little mic button that should work yeah i don't see us live streaming anywhere um what a bummer oh we are we're definitely live streaming on youtube i don't see us on my youtube app but it does say we're live there oh facebook i just need to hit go live that's my problem so i have to have facebook up and actually go live on facebook itself as well Sorry, everyone, for the technical difficulties. All right, we should be good on Facebook now, in a second at least. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Now you're muted, Matthew. on facebook now we're running live yeah we're live everywhere um so everybody we are back after a little over we're not we're not exactly um giving a hot take on israel and palestine because that whole 
situation blew over a couple months ago, but in true Mennonite fashion, we're behind the cultural conversation. Um, but we're we're still here to offer a few thoughts on it. Uh, Matthew, especially I, I, as I've been following your your feed, I, I see that you have have some topics. So I figured we'd, yeah. uh, we'd hear from you a little. Well, uh, what I what I find so I actually just spoke on this. We did a citywide meeting on dispensationalism in particular. Um, I. Personally, I'm a premillennialist. I'm a historic premillennialist, which I think is important to distinguish from dispensational premillennialism. But I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to get into an eschatology discussion, but I I certainly grew up in a Zionist dispensationalist church. Um, And so the whole Left Behind series was the hot ticket item when I was a kid and all that stuff. And what I was surprised by um, when I when I grew up and developed my own faith was how poorly we were reading those those texts and what a misunderstanding it was of history and the scriptures in regards to Israel. I, I'm I'm interested in the 20th century from a historic perspective, contemporary history perspective, you know, like an amateur. Um, and the 1948 fixture of, uh, as an independent state was a significant factor, like religiously and historically from as a child. So it was something that was always kind of like looming. And there was always this notion, you know, we were kind of like this, the Adventists, there was, we were supposed to see all this come to pass in the generation that saw Israel return and so you had whatever you counted a generation for years from 1948 and that was supposed to be the return of christ that's one one dispensationalist reading of of eschatology and the you know the closer we got to that window and the more it started to shut and just kind of went along with especially dispensationalism you know counting whether or not kofi annan's name adds up to 666 and every feature of every news story about the ushering in of the antichrist and this was going to be the end and pro you know raising red heifers in arkansas to send over for temple dedication like this stuff it just gets people really get bent out about it and i found that fascinating as a child um probably because i wasn't allowed to watch the simpsons and a lot of other pop tv like it was the most interesting thing in my world was how israel was going to be restored and and like I said, when I grew up and then I started to to question, like, well, so what is all this about? The whole narrative started to fall apart from my perspective. And I, what I find is that there's a pop narrative around Israel and the issues that relate to it that's, that's generally very, very poorly informed, historically and biblically. And, and so what I mean by that is that where who was in israel which is properly palestine like i grew up with my encyclopedia set still had palestine as the name a pre-48 set of encyclopedias so when i looked up the middle east in my wow jaw just went ghost there for a second when i looked up my encyclopedia set on the middle east my maps all still said palestine and 
And I was like, well, what's that about? Who are these people? What's Palestine? It turns out, you know, there was all kinds of people in 1948 that lived in that area that were Palestinians and how, how Israel came to be in that place at that time is a whole saga. But, but it starts with, you have to start the premise about Israel to, to be a Zionist. You have to start the premise that those people, those primarily Ashkenazi European Jews had a right like that goes all the way back to Abraham to despoil whoever lives there for however long because God gave it to them. Mm -hmm. Immediately, there's a few problems with that. The promises that the, about the land are contingent on faithful obedience, like the, the maintenance of the law and, and the Jews relationship to God himself were were necessary components to that right and and modern day israel is is very very far from that secondly the ashkenazi jews don't have the the purest claim to being jews anyhow after the diaspora you know there's there's persian jews in in iran um arab jews there's yemeni jews there's ethiopian jews there's Jewish communities all over the place that are not Europeans, uh, which in, in, even within Israel for large amounts of time have been persecuted by the Israelis because they're not the Ashkenazi, you know, pure Jew that they expect to be there, which is ironic in all kinds of ways. And then there's also religious sects that don't accept the notion that a secular nation state has a right to call itself Israel. And this is another spiritual claim that that derives itself from the Old Testament promises and curses that if you aren't faithful to me, then you have no legitimate claim to this place. So all those, like without even arguing dispensationalism or Zionism, all of those are prerequisites to the modern state of Israel having a religious claim as a theocracy that it doesn't pass to even get us there. Can I let's define a few terms because I, I keep hearing this term dispensationalist and into theology, so I should know a lot about it, but I simply do not. Um, but ju- just the kind of the, the general idea that God works with different people differently at different times maybe that's an oversimplification of dispensationalism. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me. I think maybe the real rub is when they say that like the Sermon on, on the Mount doesn't apply to us. It applies to a future dispensation or they believe in like a literal thousand year reign. Like where, where are the problems with it? Maybe I oversimplified like my understanding of it as well. So dispensationalism and for anybody that's interested, like I said, I just did a citywide meeting at Followers of the Way specifically on dispensationalism where we traced the roots of it, where it came from, who its strong advocates were and what its main points were. So if, if, you're, at, if you're interested in this, check out Followers of the Way's YouTube channel and you can find a, a whole message just on dispensationalism. But in short, the the I think the there are features of dispensationalism, but I think to get at the heart of what dispensational dispensationalism is, is that notion that whatever is written in the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, has to mean the same thing to us that it meant to its original author and its original audience. So the idea of Jesus adding or the church adding meaning 
or or um, fulfillment or or any kind of new notions to old texts is completely Im completely rejected within the notion of dispensationalism. So when they're talking about when the prophets are writing about the land, it means the same thing today that Jeremiah meant when he wrote his Jewish audience then. You can't use Jesus or the church or the spiritual supernatural version of the kingdom like you've heard, but I say none of that can, can alter the prophetic texts about the geopolitical Israel. So, so they're the Zionist. Of what I was saying then kind of, or yes, right. Okay. Um, the reason it's called dispensationalism is because Darby is the, is kind of like the grandfather of dispensation, father of it, depending on how you count it. And he was a Plymouth Brethren guy and he, the Plymouth Brethren at the end of the 19th century were doing like these, kind of like we think of the Advent people and the JWs do now. They had this huge thing about prophecy conferences. And Darby kind of got popular in these prophecy conferences. And his notion and his teaching was what he called dispensationalism. And he was looking at this, these dispensations. God was working with the world. That's where you're getting that notion from. But this, what the feature of that teaching was, was that the age of grace was like parenthetical in the plan of God. Like he starts with Abraham and the Jews, the Jews reject Messiah. All, all that history happens. And then the church age starts just to provoke the Jews because they're disobedient. But God's really, really interested in the Jews, the physical Jews, and he's only using the Gentile church just And then on the other side of the church age, the Jews are going to come back in revival, and it's all going to be really about, about Jewishness. Like, so that unalterable plan of God, like, he really is after the, the, the ethno-blood of Abraham, is what the, is really still the apple of God's eye. You can imagine all kinds of problems that people would have with that, and certainly the early church would have tremendous problems with that. But so does Paul. Like when in in the in the in Galatians, when he's when he's differentiating, like he actually calls physical Israel the 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 children of the bondwoman. Like the physical Jews in in Paul in Galatians are the children. And we, the Christians, are the children of the free. They're from Sinai. We're from Jerusalem. Like he himself makes these distinctions that are completely incompatible with dispensationalist ideology. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like the opposite of, of what I teaching. Where I, I would see it more like the the Jews. Um, the whole purpose of God choosing the Jews was so that the blessing could come to all the nations, rather right. than the nations being kind of for the Jews. <laughs> Um, which right. I mean, Paul does mention that he, you know, God is using the Gentiles, uh, or was at least, um, to provoke the Jews to jealousy. So I think that that's kind of that's true, but it's sort of a side note. It's not like the whole point right. necessarily. Well, and we can see this in 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 relief in the Old Testament. I mean, Abraham's name is Abraham. He's the father of the nations. It's literally in his name is to be the father of the nations. Like this. This global pursuit of the 
divine uh, plan is in all these things. When Solomon dedicates the temple, this should be a house of prayer for all nations. Like we see these punctuated major points in even in the Old Testament, the the lineage of Christ coming from Gentiles. Like there's specific allusion to the idea of Jesus breaking down the middle wall of partition and and globalizing man. Yeah. So Anthony so now, Anthony was Anthony and I were ahead. talking a little bit earlier and he mentioned that well he he was also talking about how you know the the promises about Israel having the land are, are very conditional um and, and I think you you had some scriptures on that Anthony or some more thoughts on that you want to jump in here is your internet good enough Maybe not We can't hear you Anthony He's not muted. The, the, the blessing of Abraham, certainly not on, on his internet tonight. Maybe he's not being faithful. <laughs> Maybe he's not blessing Israel. That's why he's not blessed with good internet. <laughs> he will curse those who curse Israel, Jah. There you go. We can't hear you. I don't know if you're talking. <laughs> Anyways. Maybe you yeah, should I got call nothing. in with your phone. Anyway. We'll we'll let him we'll give him some time to repent. You were gonna say something, Matthew. Well, uh, the the question I think that's more relevant, um, than just discourse is what the implications of this are. You know, it's all well and good to have different eschatological ideas and even hermeneutic differences. That that's that's all well and good. Where it where the reason that I invest as much energy as I do into the issue is n is not specifically to win that theological argument. It's because it it it, it actually has a lot to do with people and dying and and cruelty and uh, this is where when i when i say that i think most people are uninformed on the issue i think people are generally uninformed that i think i think americans um especially conserv politically conservative americans and and a lot of religious conservative americans think of the middle east as a place with turbans and deserts and terrorists and that's kind of like that's as sophisticated as many people's view of the Middle East is. And so they they either think that Palestine was a was an uh, uh, an inhabitantless wasteland when the Jews showed up, or it was full of the same people that I'm afraid of and think that are causing all the problems in the world. And so it's good that Israel is there to keep all the bad people in check. That's that's how a lot of the narrative runs about about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And uh, if I want to be charitable, I would say that, you know, in the 80s, maybe even the late 60s, the activities of the PLO as a terrorist organization under Yasser Arafat were doing some very provocative things in the world about, you know, kidnapping airliners and, uh, and, and a lot of the situations that were going on were, were being used by the PLO to good effect to 
effect to make people afraid. And that what I try to do when I can the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I want to try to be able to understand both sides. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think that Palestinians are just like not really humans and they don't love their mothers and they don't love their children and they're just terrorist dogs that want to destroy the world. Uh, I presume that when people are, are reacting in, in, in ways like that, that there's reasons for, are. I mean, the whole middle East and its conflicts like as a region are not happening in a vacuum. They're happening as responses to, colonialism to oppression despotism to religious conflicts a whole host of things and poverty on top of it and they don't if if you care about those things then it's worth trying to figure out where they're coming from so when i talk about the palestinian israeli conflict i i want to humanize the palestinians for people because i don't think that's people's americans impulse I think that they know that there's a Palestinian church. I don't think that they consider what it's like to live in Gaza or to live in Bethlehem or to be under the Palestinian authority or they don't they they want soundbite solutions for complicated geopolitics and it just isn't sufficient. So you have to start digging in and trying to figure out well where are they coming from? What's their grievance? Why are they reacting this way? If you want to have something meaningful to say about the issue, now very, very few people do. They just want to pro-America their way through the Israeli conflict situation. But it's it hasn't worked. Like that's it hasn't worked. Like since since '48, the the Middle East has been embroiled with conflict over this exact difficulty. And and if unless you want to just kill all the Palestinians, which doesn't it, it's not a very marketable slogan then we have to figure out what's going on there with these people and wh- why they feel the way they do. And it's not hard to understand once you start to look at what's happened to the Palestinian people throughout Israel's history, how they've been treated, the oppression. I mean, the according to UN laws, the occupation is internationally illegal. The, the death rates between when there's... That means a, a conflict from Palestine towards Israel. When there's an intifada, the, the death rates are, are so... Um, there's so much indisparity between, between... So in the last conflict, uh, well, I, I, don't, I can't pull the numbers right off my head, but it's over 200 Palestinians were killed, and I think 12 or 13 Israelis died. Um, but when you talk about dispossession and homelessness and how many refugees were made, it's in the tens of thousands. So tens of thousands of people dispossessed from their already very comp- very difficult lives, hundreds of people killed, whole families, doctors, schools, UN installations, hospitals being bombed. If here's what I I I, I just want to plead with people when we talk about this issue, if you by the by the misfortune of birth had been born in Gaza, what do you think your life would be like? If you had the misfortune of being born a Palestinian, how would you look at these things? And until somebody can have can at least grapple with that question, 
I don't think that they really have much meaningful to share on the issue. And that doesn't mean that all of the actions of Hamas or the PLO before them are right or just are not terrorism. It just means what is it like to be a Palestinian? And, and if it seems consummately Christian to start an analysis of this particular question and conflict with that premise. What is it like to be a Palestinian? When you see those little girls screaming from their houses being bombed or the dead, when you see fathers holding their dead children and wailing, what is that like? Like that that generally isn't happening on the Israeli side of the border. And it's a very common occurrence on the Palestinian side of the border. What is that like? What does that do to people who go through those experiences? If I wasn't a Christian and, and I was a Palestinian and I was holding my dead baby, you can bet that I would invest the rest of my life in the destruction of Israel. If, if Israeli bombers blew up my house and killed my family, it would become my only purpose for living to try to fight the oppressors and stop this bloodshed. That's why we have the Palestinian conflict and Hamas the way we do. Yeah. Um, um, maybe we could kind of track how, and, and I think you kind of touched on this a little bit, but like what was, you, you mentioned that like there wasn't just a, a barren wasteland of, of terrorists when, when the, the Jews moved back to that area, what was the civilization there like? Because I know there's there's Palestinian Christians. In fact, like, didn't the Christians' first name Israel Palestine? <laughs> like the first Christians? I, I think I read that in a Tom Holland book recently. But anyways, I know there's Palestinian Christians. And like historically, what was like the whole reason for moving the Jews back there and, and being like, oh, here we we now own this land? Right. Well. So Palestine was <clears throat> under Ottoman rule for a long time before, before, before colonial rule, and that switch from Ottoman to to colonial isn't isn't a big piece of my um, interest. I'm I'm more interested in the modern conflict, but but under the Ottoman rule, Jerusalem uh, and there's. There's a little museum in David's Citadel right inside the old city where they talk about um, uh, the history of, of Israel and how many times it's been called all the things. And even there, in which is a, a very, very Jewish site, um, they, they, they display that during the Ottoman reign, Christians and Muslims lived in relative peace in Jerusalem. Um, the the when I was there, I was spent a couple of weeks in Jerusalem, and I, I I set aside one day to do the Stations of the Cross to just walk through the Stations of the Cross, and um, I was doing that. I was just going from site to site along the Via Doloroso and outside the city, and uh, I was taking time at each of those sites to just reflect and. I was walking between them and um, a merchant kind of grabbed me and he wanted to sell me his wares and whatever. And I stopped and talked to him for a little bit and I'm interested. I'm not, I'm not looking for stuff to buy. Are you a pilgrim? And I said, well, not exactly, but, but kind of, and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll leave you. 
and he started talking to me about Israel, and he he asked me a funny question. He said, um, he said, the Jew, who is the Jew? And I was like, well, what kind of question is that? He said, the Jew I know, he's been in, in Jerusalem for thousands of years. Said, who is the Christian? He said, the Christian I know, he's been in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. And who is the Muslim? The Muslim I know, he's been in Jerusalem for 1,500 years. But who is the Israeli? The Israeli, I don't know, he's been here for 50 years. And, and that's a conceptualization that really I find striking about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I don't think that there has to be conflict between Jews and 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 Christians and Muslim Arabs there um, because there have been long times of history that it hasn't been conflict oriented. So why is it about Israel that's creating the conflict? Well, it has something has something to do with colonialism. It has something to do with foreign interests within that place. And if you look at the history of Zionism, which is a Christian concern, it's it's Western Christians that really start to, like in particular in Europe, um, when Christian Zionism starts to make inroads, it's Ashkenazi Jews. They feel like they're being like it's a run to like it's an attempt to run them out like get out of our country go back where you came from is how the original some of the sentiments that you read from the ashkenazis when christian zionism starts to become a buzzword there is a lot of european hostility against the jews like we always think especially in as it pertains to the second world war that it's the germans who hate the jews but that's not accurate all the europeans hate the jews the french hate the jews the british hate the jews the americans hate the jews like in 42 i think it was there were a load of jews looking for refugee status when we knew they were being persecuted in germany and america turned their ship away and and in fact passed law it was it was both a and Jews were forbidden from uh, immigration to the U.S. in the early 40s. So, so the idea that the Germans are unique in their distrust and dis for the, for the Jewish population is a misnomer. It's a European thing. I think that in watching the horrors that happened in Germany, the rest of the West kind of backed, backed themselves up and slowed their roll and said, ah, we're not going to go down that way. It's too much. But, but Jews Hatred is not a hard thing to find in 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 early twentieth century Europe. So, the dispensationalist movement is really the big pushers of this Zionist campaign in the early days. But that takes deep roots, especially in the British Empire. Early documents is the Balfour Declaration. I, I don't know if I'm being a bore here. If I'm going way too deep. Let me know, but the Balfour Declaration is one of the first. Declaration is one of the first legal documents that advocates for a Jewish homeland in Palestine, uh, and Balfour was uh, a British legislature. I think. Uh, I think he was. It was the name of a. a, a um, what do they call them? Their senators. 
Parliament. In the House of Lords. And anyhow, yeah, and he was an MP. Anyhow, so this makes its way up into legislative quarters in 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 England. And the advocation of homeland for the Jews in Palestine becomes because what happens is that the English took the took Palestine from the French, um, and they didn't want it. They wanted somebody to settle it so that it, they, I mean, with everything going on with the wars, they weren't really looking to to have more to do. Um, you. Know, when Israel is settled in in the in the late sixties, India becomes independent. So between the Second War and the independence of all kinds of trouble raging for the British Empire, not to mention all the trouble back at home from the end of the war in rebuilding, you know, London and all of all of all the bombing in Europe. So so Israel so England isn't really looking for a long-term like problem, another problem on their hands by settling the Jews there. But if the Jews would do it themselves and would take the responsibility and would hold the place up, then then you have British influence in the Middle East and not have to own the trouble. And that's kind of that's kind of the negotiation between the religious Zionists and the political in the in the British Empire. Hmm. But but. Palestine is full of Palestinians, like uh, the Arabs call um, the settlement of 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 Palestine Al Nakba. It's uh, uh, I forget how it's translated. It's like the Great Horror or something like that. The Terrible Night or something like that. And it's Palestine Jews, and. So here's another feature that I don't think most people really understand about the Israeli-Palestine conflict is that there are religious fundamentalist Jews who who are following the Zionist principle that they own Israel. No matter who lives there, they own it. And the issue of the settlements is that the 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 attempt to negotiate some kind of peace between the Palestinians and the Jews has been to set up a Palestinian authority, a place like it's it's a, a situation similar to what India was doing with Pakistan. Uh, it's a we're trying to make a separate place. Like Pakistan was supposed to be the place for the Muslims, India was supposed to be the place for the Hindus, and yeah. so they've done that with Israel on a much smaller scale. That the Palestinian Authority is supposed to be the place for the Palestinian Arabs and Israel or the Jews, but. But the Jews, the fundamentalist Jews, and it, politically and religiously, but mostly religious, aren't satisfied with that. They want all of Israel because they're there because of Jehovah's promises to Israel, to the Jews. And so they're, they're by hook and by crook, bombing and, and, and putting Palestinians wherever they can. And so what they do within the Palestinian Authority, within the small of territory that's left for the Palestinians, they're buying up what can clandestinely, moving small groups and setting up like gated communities within Palestinian territories and running their own policing, their own security, their own connections, and they're just pushing the wall further and further into Palestine. Palestinians who are already under an illegal, an internationally illegal occupation, who already have a, a history of oppression from the Israeli state 
are now being pushed out of the little bit of area that they have. And they know that the people that are settling those places, by and large, think that they have no right to be there. Now, it's ironic that the allegations from Israel are always that the Palestinians, and particularly the PLO and Hamas, say that Israel has no right to exist. But Israel continues to, in not too subtle ways, continue to support Israeli Jews doing exactly that, saying to the Palestinians, you have no right here, this is mine. And so two-state solution is what's always talked about in this regard of everybody to be there in such a small amount of land. But the, but the conflicts are always happening over, um, o- over these settlements. It's not even about al-Nakba. It's not even about the Israeli oppression. It, it's always flaring up over these illegal settlements of Jews. And what will happen in, in some occasions is that a group of Jews will just go start setting up shacks. Israel, the state, is, is legally obligated not to allow those things to happen. But what, what's documented time and time again is that in, even though legally they're not they do support the settlers and and netanyahu has said i'm uh, my government would be as friendly to the settlers as any israeli government has ever been and now the new prime minister actually comes from uh, a, an is uh, a palestinian settlement he he grew up in a settlement so there's every reason to expect that this is going to get worse even though his gover- his government is supposed to be kind of a coalition palestinian jew with some palestinian israelis Arab Israelis. Anyhow, the the settlement conflict is is what a, where the the point of the spear is in many of these conflicts. So one of the places where that happened most recently, for those that don't know, was in East Jerusalem. Jerusalem is split into quarters. The old is, is has a, a Muslim quarter on the bottom side and the Christian quarter and the Armenian quarter and the the Jewish quarter. Those are the four quarters of the old city. And in East Jerusalem, East Jerusalem was like, Jerusalem used to be like Berlin. It was split East and West. Uh, Originally, uh, uh, Jordan had East Jerusalem, but it was always the Palestinian side. The Palestinians lived in Jerusalem. Well, the Jews have been buying up whenever they can property within East Jerusalem and and using some very old laws to enact um, like archaic uh, eviction laws that favor only the Jews and don't allow the the Palestinians to use the same laws to get their territory back, um, and so dispossessed Palestinians. And it happened during um, Eid, and then and then because of those evictions out of East Jerusalem of Palestinian families during Eid, there was tension already, and the, ID, uh, the IDF showed up at Al-Aqsa, at the mosque, during Eid, and was and, and then there was anti-Palestinian marches that were radical fundamentalist Jews, all the around the Temple Mount, and then just chaos broke out, riots broke out, and then rockets broke out. That's that's the root of the of the conflict. So I, I always hear from people over here that these base are just wanting to lob rockets indiscriminately into Israel for no reason, 
and there's no thought for why these things should be. It's such an unsophisticated analysis. I, I at least, like, if, even if you disagree with me, we have to at least look at the causes if we're going to have a meaningful conversation. But. Yeah. Um, first of all, Anthony, you want to try to talk again? <laughs> His, his window is saying unable to subscribe to stream in a reasonable amount of time. Um, anyway, oh, now he left. Oh, he, yeah, he just dropped um, out again. So I, I wonder if we could pivot this to, to talk about why this matters to Christians who do not run for political office. Because obviously this has become a really partisan issue in the United States with the left siding with Palestine and the right siding with Israel. And so it, it just has become a polarized issue that people like to argue about. But and and we're not going to like I mean, you, you at several points, you've been saying, hey, it's somewhat reasonable for Palestine to respond violently or whatever. And I know you don't mean that in like a, a supportive way, because obviously right. we don't we don't support violence in any way. But we're not going to, you know, lobby for laws that free Palestine or, or whatever. So maybe maybe the, the real issue here is that that this sort of oppression would not actually be happening if it was not for people who claim to be Christians supporting the oppressor. Um, and is, is that the issue? I mean, even like with, with our people, like if you think about like conservative Anabaptists, for example, yeah, like uh, the ones who are politically involved might, in in theory, be supportive of Israel, but like, are they really empowering the oppressor? I mean, obviously, evangelicals are are empowering them through through voting in you know right wing politicians who who empower Israel. But like, what's the real catch here? Why does this matter? Obviously, we should care about anytime people are being being blown up and and families are being destroyed. Like, we need to care. Is there something we can do besides? you know, going over there and trying to provide hum humanitarian help, or are we just trying to, like, raise a standard against the, the wickedness of of Christians supporting this, or, or kind of what's the, the goal here? Yeah, I think it's a justice issue. I think when we read when we read the prophets and when we when when we're provoked again and again by by God himself and by his his spokespeople, um, we're it it seems very much to me like God is trying to cultivate within us a capacity to care for people who are oppressed and 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 defiled. Like this sense of justice, I. It, when I look at the Middle East, when I look at. Um, pictures of the Iraqi occupation when I when I watch Iraqi invaded and then I, f I flip over and I see Palestinian homes being invaded and maybe it's because I'm darker skinned than most Anabaptist people but every time I see a little girl in those pictures and that's what I think God's trying to do through the prophets I think not just the prophets, but through Jesus himself. I think in humanizing the whole human race, we're supposed to see, even in our enemies, we're supposed to see ourselves and our brother and our father and our and our, our sons. Like the humanization of everyone is the goal. And and 
that's what the Christian ethos is supposed to be contributing to the health, like to the health of society. And, and so, so that ought to, that ought to condition our responses to any kind of conflict because we're supposed to be the peacemakers. We're at least supposed to care about peacemaking, even if we can't be directly involved in it. And if you're going to care about peacemaking, then you have to know which, which side's being oppressed. And if you're going to know which side is being oppressed, then you have to care about those who are being oppressed. So, so these justice concerns are, are the initial premise. And then if you care about it and you start to look into, well, why is this situation thus? Why are people being oppressed? Where is it coming from? And what's, what's, the, what's the motive behind it? Why is it happening? What you find is that American support, and by and large, I think that support is has been uh, stoked and propagated and 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 legitimized by and large by the Christian community. That that's horrendous. So then, so then you start with this concern for justice. You 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 start for caring about why people are being oppressed, and then when you get to the bottom of the sum, you see that it's predominantly the American Christians who are responsible for the oppression. And and they don't. I don't think that. Are. I mean, they they think they're fighting the good fight for against the bad people, and it just it's not anything the way it's being presented. So American evangelicalism has set up a system just like European evangelicalism did it with the with the with the original Zionist movement. Now the American Zionist movement, the American evangelical Zionist movement, is responsible for weapons for all this money for all of this this political will to continue to oppress the palestinian people for the sake of really western influence in the middle east disguised as judeo-christian uh affinity tribalism neo-christian like the East versus West, the the Muslim East against. I mean, it's it's really like medieval. It's the it's it's the Muslim East against the Christian West, and it and 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 Israel is the Mason Dixon. It's the line where they cross. Yeah, that wow, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Um... I want to circle around back to that because I actually taught on the topic of justice this last Sunday in Richmond. Um, uh, But we have a question before we get to that. We have a question from JLP um, who's watching in spite of the fact that we only have 50% of most dank icon here. Half the icon's Uh, gone. And if you want to join us, JLP, anyone else watching, I dropped the link in the live stream where you can actually call in. Um, I think that link should work if you click it and then hit start live call in or something. But anyways, um, his question is, I have an end time question to do with Zionism. I used to be Zionist, but then my theology of the two kingdoms pulled me out of that. However, my end times view of historic premillennialism has not changed, um, which it should. He should become an uh, amillennial partial preterist. But anyway, but this is probably for you since you're- He probably loves the the early church too much. So he says so, and and doesn't love um, uh, reading scripture in context, you know. So if there will eventually be a mass conversion by the Jews, Romans eleven, at the time of Jesus's return, how do we separate that from Zionism? Do you believe in a mass conversion of the Jews? 
I think that there. So, as a premillennialist, I believe in a, a revival in the end days. But the but the question for me is that that may or may not have n- nothing to do with physical Israel. Since the diaspora, we we don't know where Jews are. Well, like we don't know which we don't even know which communities are Jewish. Uh, and and it's it, it, there's certainly no reason to think that whatever revival there should be only come from the Ashkenazis. Um, it could be from any quarter of, of, of physical Israel. Um, so, so that's one thing. And the second thing is that um, it's very likely that whatever, if that's the case, if we assume premillennialism, then the most likely scenario is that um, physical Israel, the Jews there, are going to be the ones who get in the way of those evangelists that are springing up out of physical Israel, like that will be the, the, the detractors. That will be the people trying to shut them up and silence them. Whatever Christian witness would arise from physical Israel will become the enemy of the, the secular nation state of Israel. And I think I always say those terms together because it's, there's been such a religious sanctification of the nation state of Israel that I always say what it actually is, the secular nation state of Israel. It is not Judaism. It is the secular nation state of Israel. And it's very purposely secular. It's very purposely a nation state. That's why the more radical forms of orthodoxy don't accept the validity of the Israeli state because it's not predicated on the law, the Mosaic law. So and and Ben Gurion and the original founders of is- Israel knew that they were trying to purposefully create a secular nation state of Israel. Yeah. So there's no reason to read Israel as the benefactor of that evangelistic fervor that's predicted in the premillennialist outcome. Um so circling back to this issue of justice, um, when I was studying to, to talk about it on Sunday, I, I, I think I kind of can, can see a difference between how the Old Testament prophets related to nation states and even how John the Baptist related to them with, with how Jesus and the apostles did. So John the Baptist we see confronting Herod and saying, hey, it's messed up that you have your brother's wife. The Old Testament prophets were constantly railing against nations for being unjust, but we don't really see that from from Jesus and the apostles. We see more of a um, kind of a, a more subtle approach, and and so I, I do think it's important. I don't think it's it's wrong. I think it's sometimes necessary for Christians to call out what evil nations are doing, but I think primarily, like when when it comes to justice, primarily we're we are creating an alternative society where where justice actually does prevail. So maybe what that would look like is just planting a church in Jerusalem where Palestinians and Israelis um, can can celebrate the Eucharist together and and also caring for the poor, caring for those who are suffering physically. Is is that the case? Or like, do you kind of disagree with my analysis there? Well, I generally, uh, uh, I'm sympathetic to your analysis. I don't know that I agree. Uh, tell that Fox Herod is a pretty scathing rebuke. Uh, I think Jesus invests most of his energy in upsetting systems and orders within Israel itself, and 
and the the broader Roman world isn't his primary concern. So, so even there in in John, we find him going after the Herodians, not specifically the Romans. In fact, his his take with the Roman soldiers is not much different than Jesus's. Do no violence is his instruction to them, and show fruit, meet into repentance. He's not he's not really going after Rome either, although I'm sure people wished he would have, just like Jesus. But 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 what I would what I what I don't know how to separate myself from is that so many American issues in the political world are wrapped up with Christian identity. And so I can't have a detached academic approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because people who call themselves my people, American Christians, are, are directly responsible for the oppression that's happening. And so it's not like, for me, it's not like if Switzerland was funding the occupation of Palestine, like I would probably still have similar things to say if asked about it, but it would matter very little. Like I, I don't, I don't have much to do with whether or not Switzerland funds the occupation of the Palestinians. It just would be immaterial. Like it would, it could be just as bad, but it would be immaterial. Is what's it got to do with me? Especially if it was coming from a secular state, not from a Christo state. And so when you mix evangelicalism into the political spectrum here so much power and influence then these things that could be just state issues all of a sudden become religious issues and fall i feel personally fall back in my domain so when we're asking questions about justice that are the palestinians being unjustly treated it's also are american christians responsible for the unjust treatment of palestinians yeah. So your main goal here is to get American Christians to stop supporting Israel, like <laughs> to really simplify it. Right, right. All right. You all heard it. Stop supporting Israel. <laughs> the secular nation state of Israel, Correct. which, you know, in your in your in your Pollyannic vision uh, of just making a church in Jerusalem, the Israeli state would not allow you because it's illegal to proselytize according to Israeli law. Wow. You're not allowed to make Jewish converts there. Aren't a lot of the leaders actually atheists as well? Yes. You know, women serve in the IDF. Um, the state funded abortions the uh, Israeli defense fund, the state funded abortions for female soldiers in the IDF. I don't know if that's the case anymore, but it used to be. Yeah. How's that? How's that ruffle evangelical feathers? Yeah. I'm just trying to think like what, what could convince someone who's just a diehard Zionist? Um, like, like I, what, what would get The them? only thing that convinces people is to humanize the people that they don't care about. Like, that's why I continue to talk about Palestine. I'm not particularly, I'm not a fanatic about Palestinians. I'm a fanatic about people who are being oppressed and killed and destroyed. And, and if, if we can get people who are Zionists to stop and think about the humanity of people who are living under that, that situation, at least maybe we can get them to slow down and think about things in a little more complicated way. 
that that's my goal. That's why I always pick post pictures. Like I've uh, I got, I've gotten one ding from I've got zucked once in the last year, uh, and it was for posting pictures of of people grieving dead Palestinians, and uh, I'll take that hit. Like I I want people if 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 people are going to support Zionism, then they need to look at it in the in the face. They need to see grieving fathers. They need to and. And the answer is always, well, it's because of Hamas. Well, Hamas didn't kill their children. And and if we're going to run death tolls and you have thousands of deaths in the last five, ten years, you know, this is the, the interesting thing is that this issue politically in America does cross the evangelical line. It's not just a, a, a conservative issue. Like it really is an American empire issue. Obama was responsible for supporting Israel under the last intifada in, in 2014, and it was way more bloody than this last short one. That's mm -hmm. the one where those little boys were playing soccer on the beach and were bombed by the IDF. Like, <clears throat> it's just, it doesn't have, this is a, a, a politically complicated situation. I, 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 I don't want to minimize that. It's not like there's easy answers. But from a moral perspective, it is easy to always say whoever's killing children is wrong. Whatever the conflict is about, if dead babies are coming out, you're the bad guy. No matter what, if you're America, if you're Hamas, if you're if you're Brazil, if you're Israel, when when your bombs are killing women, innocent civilians, women and children, you're the bad guy all, all the time, every time. That's always the Christian perspective. Whoever kills the babies is bad. Like that that could just be our our anti-Zionist mantra. Whoever kills the babies is bad. It's not it's not morally complicated. Like, I, I don't care how, how, when you have to kill children, you're the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I noted, I, I saw someone post something on Facebook about, you know, and this was a very popular conservative Anabaptist leader about, you know, there, there's these, what did he say about these rockets being fired at this terrorist bunker? And as always, there's some civilian casualties, you know, and that, that was basically the offhanded comment, you know, it's so interesting right. how, how you can just frame it like that and, um, mi yeah, minimize that. It's pretty, pretty wild. Um, yeah, it's terrible. Anyways, on that happy note, do we want to wrap this or, or do you, do you have anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> Yeah, I, I it takes a lot to get me tired of hearing myself talk, but but I I think with just the Titus and Matthew show, that's probably enough of a lecture on anti-Zionism. Yeah, because I don't disagree with you, and I I don't know a lot about it, so it's basically me interviewing you. <laughs> I've 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 worked myself into a corner in all of my in all of my public endeavors. People want to hear me disagreeing with people. It's one of the most common feedback my other podcast talking the chasm is people get bored when me and Felix agree on stuff. They want to hear us disagree. Well, we could probably find something to disagree. <laughs> well, we'll have to on the next episode. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. All Which, right. When everybody. will our next episode be? 
that will be, I guess, in a month, last Friday of next month. Right. Are we going to talk about women's roles? Mm, I would like to. Oh, boy. That's the one issue that has split the dank kingdom in half. Like, I don't think there's there's any other issue that has caused more drama. Yeah, I, I may I may be teaching on that in the next month. So, didn't you? Don't you teach on that pretty much every Sunday? <laughs> no, no, far you taught, from it. But you have taught on it. Uh, you taught yeah. about you you taught about the page like God is a patriarchy was literally a yeah. title. So what what else do you have to say? <laughs> Men, women, and the patriarchy. No, I want to talk about, uh, and the next time I talk about this issue at Fathers Away, I want to talk about, I don't want to talk about what isn't a woman's role in the church. I want to talk about what is a woman's role in the church. Which is having babies. <laughs> it's part of it. <laughs> See, I, I kind of, I, I, think i disagree with you on this but honestly like it within the dank kingdom community there it, it's it's mostly about rhetoric i feel like because yeah. i don't not very few of, of these folks with some exceptions would like affirm like a, a woman being a pastor of a church and teaching on sunday right um and and yet like depending on how you phrase certain things and if, if drew's listening he'll be like no it's not just about how you phrase it we've had we've gone around and around on this but like i honestly think a lot of it is just the words you use and like are are you like trying to to uh constantly be shining a light on on all of the ways that the women you know are, are elevated and have authority or whatever or are you doing the opposite it feels like if a, a, a matter of emphasis do you agree with that uh, i think that's a i think that's a large part of it I, I think there are some substantial differences um but they're not as substantial as as they are outside of our niche like the, like the in-house debate is different than the out-of-house debate i i i you know i here, here we're getting into this topic. Um, I assume that you actually submit to, to your wife on certain issues that she's more wise than you on, right? Like, I, I know you're not into calling it mutual submission, whatever, but like, I'm sure that there's been a point in time where Erica has said something and you've said something else. And then you're like, you know what? She probably knows better than me on this issue, right? No, I do that. I do that. If, if not every day, at least every week. So that's mutual submission. Like what? Well, so so here's where here's where you're you're right that it's it's a matter of how you define terms, which every issue is always about how you define terms. When when the Bible talks about submission, I think it's I think it's it's a conflict resolution mechanism. It's a it's a way of sorting out when you're at an impasse. That's the reason for. But do you reach impasses right? with your wife regularly? Because I feel like if that's like a a, a regular no. event, you have marriage problems. <laughs> right. No, I almost. But but I think a large part of why we don't reach impasses is because we have clearly defined roles and where submission comes. That's why I don't call listening to my wife submitting to her. I don't think it's mutual submission. I, I don't think it's the same thing. I think submission is about. So like my wife had this, this is all commercial for our next episode, I guess. But my yeah. wife had this, this epiphany one time. She said, you know, when she was talking with some other women about some, some of these 
she said it occurred to her that I, I, I don't submit to Matthew very much because it's so very rare that we disagree. But when we have a disagreement, that's when it becomes an issue. Like when we don't see eye to eye, how do we resolve that? And that's where submission comes into play. And that's true in any, in any system that uses authority or submission. Now, when we look at, when we look at the Godhead, we wonder, well, why should Christ submit oh, to the son? It's not about conflict because the Godhead is an in conflict, but, but what is it about? It's the way that the, the Godhead resolves, like who's planning this is ministry, who's sending, who's commissioning, who's ordering, who's directing. It's the one that comes first. It's the, it's the father, the one that everything comes from. And the reason Paul uses ordered terminology in first Corinthians as his rationale for the head covering is because woman comes from man and man comes from God and Jesus comes from the father. Okay. Um, what do you do with submit to one another right before should, wives submit to we your should, husband? We should, we should save it for the episode. Okay. Sounds good. Let's do that. <laughs> That's enough of a teaser. Maybe people will get on board. Did we get Rebecca Mui on that episode. <laughs> I don't know if it would be profitable. <laughs> Her and Drew and a few others, they're on a tear, man. I, I feel caught in the middle. Yeah, but you know what's right. You just your your head is torn between you're, you're torn between your head and your heart. You're no. torn between the scriptures and your affections. I I think that there's a, a New Testament emphasis on the elevation of women that is that that's coming into a context where women are oppressed. That like that's if if the New Testament is doing anything about gender, it's doing that. Um, and and not elevating in the sense of you have babies, which is so amazing. Sure, it's amazing that that too. But like that's not what I mean when I say the New Testament elevates women. I think it does it in other pretty specific ways where it breaks down gender stereotypes. And I just think it's important to like to emphasize that as well. Like they were the first ones who discovered the tomb. Like Jesus had women disciples, which other rabbis did not have. Like there's women apostles. There's women co-workers with paul the 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 husband doesn't have authority over his body but the woman does like all this stuff would have been scandalous and if like all we do is try to fight feminism that does are you sure all that stuff would have been scandalous yeah like i i mean do you not think so like the roman empire was like more patriarchal than you which is pretty pretty uh, impressive uh there were some awfully powerful women in the roman state Okay, but like the, and the, the Roman I, society, the idea that a male biographer of Jesus's life would have the disciples cowering and like a, a female followers of Jesus discover the empty tomb, be the first proclaimers of the gospel. If by proclaimer of the gospel you mean testifying to the resurrection, that's that's unusual. Like that should grab your attention. Yeah, I I don't I I, I don't want to whitewash the the bad things about the roman empire i just think that it's a more complicated i i i, I there are there are chattel systems um regarding women in in the old world but there are also it seems like the more complicated a social order is the more that line is not a straight one 
Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, there's always been exceptions for sure. Well, and and I think the more complicated a social order is, the more exceptions there are. And you think that's bad? The exceptions are bad. I, I what mean, about the biblical in, exceptions like Deborah are right. those bad? Well, I mean, the the question to is it an exception? Like, what's the point to the exception? I don't know. You could say there's a moral trajectory where where God is breaking into their cultural expectations with like a little progress here and there. Well, if you want to know, I mean, there's an answer to the question. Deborah tells us, I mean, she says, fine, if you're too much of a sissy, then a woman will lead you. Well, there, well, there you go. I mean, that's it. That's a human's uh, perception of it, I guess. What she says. <laughs> she was there. Oh, my. What about driving a, a stake through a, a dude's temple? That's always on the table. Yeah, it's pretty intense. There was that 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 woman through what was his name? Shimey's head over the wall. Yeah. All good stuff. All right. Well, next time we'll talk about women's issues. All right. Sounds good. Three, three dudes talking about women. <laughs> Just like wow. the Bible. That sounded weird. Yeah. That's all your comeback, isn't it? All right. I'll catch you later, man. All right. Bye. <laughs>